Hello and welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics Season 2. My name is Javi Trujillo, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host and son, Jack Trujillo. Hello. So in today's episode, we are going to cover a single issue, and it's a big one. Amazing Spider-Man number 3 from July of 1963. Now, up to this point, Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 have both had two stories, but now, with the appearance of Dr. Octopus, we are getting our first full-length thriller, as they used to say. So, borrowing from the synopsis from the official index to the Marvel Universe, while Spider-Man captures three criminals during their attempted safe robbery, Dr. Otto Octavius, a.k.a. Dr. Octopus, is hard at work at the U.S. Atomic Research Center, using his special tentacle apparatus to handle radioactive materials. His experiment goes awry, causing an explosion. Hospitalized, Octavius discovers the radiation has fused his tentacled apparatus to his body, granting him superhuman strength. But he has also suffered severe brain damage, turning him into a paranoid megalomaniac. Octopus captures the hospital staff, and as a result, press inquiries are rebuffed. When J. Jonah Jameson complains, Peter offers to bypass security and get photos. As Spider-Man, he sneaks into the hospital and observes Octopus ranting to his captives. Overconfident, Spider-Man confronts Octopus, but is overwhelmed, contemptuously slapped in the face and hurled through a window while Octopus's hostages escape. Octopus returns to the research center which he takes over, destroying half of the facility as a demonstration of power and protecting himself with electronic barriers. Peter is despondent over his defeat at school the next day, where the Human Torch addresses the student body, closing with an inspirational speech. Encouraged by the Torch's words, Spider-Man hurries to the research center, where he uses wire to bind several chemical-filled beakers together, then uses the chemicals to fuse two of Octopus's metal arms together. He evades his foe's remaining arms, blinds Octopus with webbing, knocks him out, and webs him up for the police, and seeks out the torch to thank him for his unwitting inspiration. <clears throat> that was a bit of a mouthful there. Yeah. Uh, the story is uh, titled Spider-Man vs. the Strangest Foe of All Time, Dr. Octopus. So it, it seems like they just kind of took the introduction and count that as the title for this. Um, it gets a little more creative the deeper we get into this. But for right now, that apparently is the official title for Amazing Spider-Man number three. All right, so Jack, why don't you go ahead and open this up with your initial thoughts. It's a good introduction. I really like this issue. Um, this... Since it's a whole length story and not like two different stories put together in one issue, it really gives you time to like understand Dr. Octopus a little bit and see him in action and then eventually have Spider-Man confront him after learning a bit of a lesson since it's still kind of really early in his career and he's still just a kid and not really understanding like defeat and especially against a dangerous 
a dangerous foe like Dr. Octopus. I really like the cover to this one. I mean, it pretty much announces Dr. Octopus is the villain three times on the cover. Um, he calls himself Dr. Octopus. We've got two different captions that have his name in it. Uh, there's another word bubble that uh, calls him the world's most dreaded supervillain. So uh, the hype is strong, as it usually is when it comes to Marvel stuff. But they keep Ditko, maybe it's not his choice, but they keep an air of mystery uh, with the cover where they keep him in shadow. So really you only see the tentacles, which kind of gives him like uh, a little bit inhuman in a sense because he's just this monstrous figure. Um, which is funny that, that they do that because you go to the first page and you see a full-on shot of what he looks like. Kind with of. his bowl cup and his his uh, glasses. And but one thing I want to point out really quickly is that on the cover he's wearing his classic green suit, but for the rest of the issue, he's just wearing a white lab coat the entire time. Huh. You know I never picked up on that before. We all know that that Ditko loves green, so it makes sense that. A green outfit is somewhere, but yeah, I never really recognized that before. So we we start off with Spidey um, interrupting a warehouse robbery. Really quick fight, leaves him for the police, and uh, we see the spider signal in action against <laughs> the wall. Um, it's just, I don't, I don't understand. It's not like. Like, you would just think you would just go in and surprise them, and not just, like, show, like, you're trying to catch, like, oh, hey, he's here now. But. Well, the spider signal is a surprise. It, it kind of startles them and gets them scared. Because, you know, they're operating in the darkness, and so the spotlight serves as a, as a way to startle them and, and, you know, for Spidey to make a splashy entrance. I guess it's it's like the Batman Arkham games where you or uh, the Batman Begins game where you've got like an intimidation level going on and that makes people scared so you can beat them up easier. It's kind of like that. <laughs> so goofy though. One of the things I found interesting, like the first time I read this, because it wouldn't have been my first exposure to Doc Ock, but how he's got like these four rotary controls built into the harness. Like, mm. I never, you know, as a kid, I, I don't remember what my first experience was with Doc Ock, but, I mean, the super, not the superpowers, the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars figure, if I'm remembering them right, kind of had, like, just the standard muscular body, mm. so it wouldn't have occurred to me that he's got, like, these, what looks like old rotary phones, like how you would dial the number yeah. um, to control his arms. Which had to have been really hard to get the precision to work for all that. But I love, uh, let's see what page it would be. One, two, page four. Top of page four, there's a panel of the explosion. And it's just red and um, Ock is in silhouette with the glow uh, highlighting him on the side of yellow. And it just, I mean, this is Steve Ditko, but there's something about that that just feels very Jack Kirby-ish to me, and I've always liked that panel. It looks like your copy. I'm reading the paperback version of the uh, Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks Volume 1. You've got 
the Epic Collection. <clears throat> yeah. And yours, it's just red and black. But mine, there's like a yellow highlight. So I guess they recolored it on mine. I'll have to check out my Omnibus yeah. and see what that looks like. And then the next panel over, the sky of the fire is black, whereas mine is purple. And then comparing further, like, my hospital room is yellow, and yours is like a... Kind of... Green, green. and then like aqua blue in some. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, when we read uh, Chapter 1, the first issue, where John Byrne, you know, combined two of the nuclear-related accidents together. So this was something that got... I'd say it got changed in continuity, but I don't know anyone who read Chapter 1 and then considered it like, this is the definitive Spider-Man origins from then on. Not like Man of Steel, where that had like the significant impact for you know the next 20 years. Like I don't think anyone read Chapter 1 and took it as canon from that moment forward. Yeah. Um, Although, man, they, they sure did try by bringing back some of those looks, especially for Electro. So we get into Spidey going off to get some photos from Mr. Jameson about Doc Ock. And it's it's just true to form. He's young. He's got these powers. Like, he had trouble with the Vulture. A bit, yeah. But Doc Ock is different. He's He just figures that he can take him right away. And it doesn't work out that way for him at all. And so once again, in his arrogance, Peter makes a mistake. I'm sure, like, his arms, getting hit by those metal arms would hurt. <laughs> but, you know, on page nine, Doc just slaps him across the face. He's just a regular <laughs> dude. Like, I'm sure that didn't really bother Spider-Man too much. It was probably just the more of being, you know, a 16-year-old, yeah. getting his butt kicked, Thrown out the window. And thrown out the window. And so we get, yet again, is this the end of Spider-Man? Like, this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the series. Also, on the, on the next page, on page 10, I love, like, just how Ox arms, just, they're longer now than before, and he uses them <laughs> to, like, disguise himself as, like, pipes. Oh, yeah. And he's just, like, hiding up at the ceiling. Like, he doesn't really do that a whole lot. I can't think of any other issue or show or movie where, you know, he uses his arms to blend into the scenery and kind of hide, which I, I thought was pretty cool. But he quickly takes over things, and and Peter's just sulking. Yeah. I, we said it before, but Peter is, like, the original emo kid. He doesn't <laughs> need black hair and a symbiote to do it. He... He feels pretty beat up and down on his luck. And then we get the second appearance of the Human Torch. Who just shows up at the school. Yeah. Presentation. You know, don't superheroes show up to your school now? Oh, yeah. Now that you're back in session? Totally. Uh, but, you know, it's funny because they, as... And we're going to get into this a lot in the Ditko era, where, where Spidey and the Torch have this kind of, like, love-hate relationship thing. It's not like the Torch and the Thing. Um, there's there's definitely a mutual respect there, sometimes some competitiveness. But it's not just Spidey and the Torch, it's like the Torch and Peter, which you're going to see later. Um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. But 
they've always been friends since the beginning, and it's just one of those relationships uh, in the MCU, I was going to say the MCU, in the Marvel Universe <laughs> that I just always appreciated as a kid. Like, I always liked seeing them together. Just like I like Green Lantern and The Flash, or Green Lantern and Green Arrow paired up. Um, to me, this is similar to that. Like, I really buy into their relationship as, as friends. And it makes sense, too, that, you know, they're both high school-aged kids, so they, they would get along, you would think. Um, although Johnny doesn't really... I don't really feel like Johnny knows that Spidey's his age at this point. Maybe he's got mm-hmm. a sense of it. And it's a long time before... Um, he learns of Peter's dual identity, too, if I remember right. One of the things that, you know, he does, uh, in addition to his fire math trick, is he gives a speech. And, and the gist of it is that the important thing is to never give up. And he reemphasizes it again. Remember that, never give up. It's just a, a core tenet of Spider-Man. Um, and we'll get into it, really get into it in the Master Planner saga. But I like to see that it starts early on in his career. I like that Peter, like, slowly takes it in and then goes to think. Johnny, right? This is yeah, Johnny okay. Storm. Johnny Storm. He goes up and thanks him, and then Johnny is just like, sure, fella. Glad you liked it. <laughs> and then Peter just, like, immediately rushes home to get back into the action. I appreciate that. And I like when he does, you know, leap back into things, how he uses the uh, web slingshot method, gets two trees and webs up either side of him to propel himself over the gate. I mean, the gate's not very tall. It looks like an average-sized gate. With the proportional strength of a spider, he could just jump over it. Yeah. But it's a cool visual. I appreciate seeing it in the movies and when we see it in the games. So, unlike last time, where he fought the vulture and he had to think about it and go home and mess around in his home lab, mm. like, he just gets inspired by Johnny. He's like, I'm going to go do this again. <laughs> like, he doesn't really have the same, you know, plan. He doesn't really have any plan other than I'm not going to give up. Uh, until he stumbles across the chem lab. Well, I say stumble, but he says in the dialogue, there's what I'm looking for, the chem lab. So I guess he has some kind of a plan, but he's not... um, Direct about it? Yeah, he's not prepared like he was when he had round two with the vulture. He's just going in the fact like, well, they got to have a chem lab, so I'll whip up something there. But again, trying to be positive here. Um, he's doing this, he's making up his own chemical concoction that's going to work against Dr. Octopus, and it's just him. I I don't want to harp too much on other iterations of the character, but I really appreciate that this teenage kid is smart enough to figure things out by himself and make it happen. He's He's not looking for a mentor to tell him what to do. He's just, he has his own agency and he's doing it. I love those Ditko eyes on the bottom, the last panel on page 16. Just, that's the shape that the uh, Hasbro Marvel Legends retro wave classic Spider-Man has, the alternate head swap. 
It's exactly those eyes. and I, I love Romita eyes. I love McFarlane eyes. I love Ditko eyes, um, especially when they look like that. What do you think of um, his plan to defeat Ock? Like how he actually winds up doing it? It's... Well, like, starting with the whole, like, chem thing, he uses it, like, super fast, and it doesn't really work out in his favor, since it kind of turns it into, like, as he describes it, a club, and so he just starts bashing him with that. But I do like that, like, how Doc Ock tries to bring him close, so then Peter decides to use that to his advantage to... shoot him in the face and then get a bit closer to knock him out while he's battling the arm. Well, here's what what I'm curious about because I'm trying not to get ahead of myself and experience this as much as I can in the moment. Like, I know we get Ock again very soon, but I don't remember how he gets his arms fixed if that's something they allow him to do, which is a horrible idea if that's the case. But two of his arms are melted together, and now the harness is on top of him. So I, at this moment, I don't remember how he fixes his forearms, because hmm. the way it looks here, they, are, they're they melted together. They're fused together. Yeah. I'm kind of tempted to look forward, but we'll get there when we get there, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, with his... Spider strength, he just one punches Doc Ock and he's out. Because while, you know, he may have had the arms fused, he's still just a regular person. So this is something, and this this I will kind of spoil for you a little bit. This is something that comes into play 697 issues later. Okay. <laughs> or maybe, maybe not even that far ahead. Maybe like 650-ish issues mm. later. Um, where all this physical beatings that Doc Ock gets from Spider-Man result in him like, okay, he's dying now because he's got all these concussions and mm. things that have built up over time. And that launches his whole ends of the earth plan, which then leads into the whole Ock Spidey brain swap and the death of Spider-Man in 700 leading to the superior Spider-Man. So... Uh, it's nice to to see them go at it and where it all began, thinking about where it's gonna go. What are your what are your thoughts right now on Doc Ock? Now that you've read his origin, like where does where does he rank for you as a bad guy? Um, like just out of what we've seen so far, or. Just just in general now. I mean, you've seen... It's been a minute, but you've seen Spider-Man 2. You fought against him in video games. And now you've read his first comic story. Like, wh- where do you rank him on your personal, like, Spidey villain list? What do you think of him? I don't know. Because I think, like, as a villain, I think he's interesting in, like, the sense that he has, like, all these metallic limbs to like do all kinds of crazy things and expand them and slap Spidey around but I don't know I don't feel like 
they go into the whole like scientist aspect of him a lot when he's facing Spidey and since they're like both really like geniuses I don't think they like go into that a lot as far as like from what I've seen except maybe in like Spider-Man 2 but I don't know. He's kind of like a mid-tier villain for me. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's some. There's definitely some good stuff coming. Um, personally, he's not one of my favorite villains. Like, there's some. There's some good stuff like um, coming up with like Aunt May, especially that. It's kind of weird, but I don't know. I've always kind of liked it at the same time. Um, but. Yeah, he's just... He's not one of my favorite Spidey villains. I, I appreciate him. Um, I don't even know if I would... I don't even know if I'd put him in, like, my top five for me. So... And, and I don't know why that is. Um, he's definitely... He has a unique visual. But he's just, he's just not up there for me. I wouldn't say he's overrated... But he's just not one of my... He's no Green Goblin. So Spidey beats Ock and then goes to thank the Human Torch and says, My spider sense tells me that his room is just ahead. Uh, Spidey, that's not how Spidey sense works. It warns you <laughs> of danger. And unless... You know, the Torch is going to give you a third degree burn right now. I, I think you're okay. Yeah. So Spidey comes in, gives his thanks. Torch is confused like he always is. And uh, Spidey takes off. So the next day, now that, that Torch is better, because the whole reason why he visited the school um, and didn't take on Doc Ock himself is he was sick with a virus, so his flames weren't at full strength. So now that he's feeling better, he goes to the school to show off you know, in full force, which is funny because there he is walking around the school with a virus, apparently. It's like <laughs> getting everyone yeah. sick. Um, it's just, it's weird to read that in this 2021 context where we're having mask arguments and should we be in person and how many rooms or how many people in a room. And, yeah. and I mean, granted, the, he doesn't have the coronavirus. Sure it's probably just a cold. But it's still kind of funny. In uh, recording this in an era where it's like, if you feel sick at all in any way, stay home. Oh yeah. So, so we got the kids at school. Flash is uh, calling the Human Torch a, a hero. W what do you think of of the kids and the school scenes this issue? Um. Let's see. Since we're only like at the beginning. Huh? Right. There's not a whole lot going on. Maybe I'm just thinking of the next issue. I'm sure I might just be thinking of the next issue. Uh, well, actually, there's a bit. I don't know. Because, like, Peter's... After, like, Peter's defeat, he's all, like, mopey and wa goes to school all sad. But the people still, like, greet him... And are just, like, saying hello and stuff. And are oh, yeah. discussing with him about what's going on. 
but I mean Flash is just being the jerk that he is but everyone else is like the girls are being nice to him and stuff so yeah it's interesting that he's just like even though he's kind of like the outcast people still like interact with him a good deal and are always like picking on him I like how Stan Lee points out for the first time ever a case ends without Peter Parker delivering any photos to Mr. Jameson like well it is issue 3 <laughs> so yeah I mean is it really a big deal I mean I guess it is when you're you're um, establishing your hero how did this hold up for you in your uh, 2021 lens? Well, I'd say it was a pretty good issue for the most part. I still think, since I'm looking at it right now, the spider signal is goofy. I think they make some reference to some guy that I don't know. I don't know uh, what Albert is. Schweitzer? Yeah. He's a scientist. Yeah. I think there was, like, some other guy that I was thinking of, too. I feel like. But. And, of course, the torch going to school when he's sick and stuff. Obviously not that I'm in school and in COVID wearing a mask and everyone else is wearing a mask and that's sort of like... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But overall, it was good. I enjoyed the whole battle between Peter and Doc Ock. And of course, I don't know if I brought it up when we talked about um, the earlier issues, but I like seeing other Marvel characters interact with Spider-Man. So, seeing the Human Torch here is nice. And having him inspire Peter to go back and try again. It's a good message. What, um, how big is your knowledge of the Human Torch right now? Um, like how familiar are, are you with him? Not, I don't really know him a whole lot. My, like I vaguely remember the Fantastic Four movies and I knew I know I had, like, a little toy of him that I really liked. Because he was all, like, kind of clear and looked cool. But I was like... That's, like, all I can think of regarding him. Yeah, I can't... Yeah. Well, this is definitely not the last time we see the torch. Especially in the Lee Ditko era. Well, it seems like we got through issue three pretty quick. Do you want to tackle... Issue four, sure. For this episode too. All right. Let's uh, let's get into issue four then. I almost forgot to talk about it. Oh, there's a special surprise bonus Spider-Man pinup page from your own from your pal Spider-Man. Yeah, there's a few of those um, in the Marvel Tales versions, which are what I would have read as a kid, and I know. I can't remember which ones. Maybe when we come across it, I'll remember. Um, 
that were reprinted in different order than what they were originally published. And I know I'd taken one or two of those and actually taken them out of the comic and actually pinned them up in my bedroom back when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one, and it's it's got like all his characters around him, like in little boxes that uh, has been homaged a few times. That was one of them. I can't remember what the second one was right now. But, um, yeah, that's a good good image of Spidey right there. So why don't you take uh, us through Amazing Spider-Man number four from September 1963. Nothing can stop the Sandman. Oh, you know what? We didn't mention credits last time, did we? No. It was, it was obviously Stan Lee, Steve Ditko... Who is our colorist in number three? Uh, it says nope. John Duffy letters and then uh, Arts Art Sinek, yeah. Letters. So they don't really credit a colorist. Who did issue four? I imagine much of the, the same crew. Um, Stanley Ryder, Steve Dicko, Plot Artist, Part Assistant Art, Sam Rose in letters, and then Art Simek Cover letters. Cover letters. So yeah, no colors as well. Interesting. But anyways, Spider-Man captures Charlie on his cohorts before they can... Oh yeah, okay. Spider-Man captures Charlie and his cohorts before they can break into a jewelry store. Since they haven't haven't yet committed a crime, they heckle him and call for a police system. Later, Spider-Man encounters the Sandman in the midst of a multi-state crime spree. Spider-Man punches, Spider-Man's punches are ineffective, and Sandman easily knocks him off from a rooftop, tearing Spider-Man's mask and forcing him to flee. Back home, Peter repairs his mask while listening to TV reports on Sandman's continued criminal activities. The next day, after a failed attempt to get a salary advance from Jameson, Peter heads to, for school, and circumstances force him to break his first date with Liz Allen. Meanwhile, police pursue Sandman, forcing him to hide out at Peter's school. Sandman bullies Principal Davis, but Peter, having left class, class er, earlier on an errand, bursts in at Spider-Man and tackles him. Sandman's imaginative uses of his powers flummox. Spider-Man before the hero sucks the villain into an industrial strength vacuum cleaner. After faking photos of the battle by throwing sand in the air, Peter sells the film to Jameson, but the reputations of both Peter Parker and Spider-Man continue to suffer. So this issue is one that I didn't read um, until I was in high school. Um, Probably my freshman or sophomore year I want to say it was 92 so it might have been my soft the beginning of my sophomore year um, and I read it in this copy of the Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks trade paperback and I gotta say of the covers we've had so far for this book excluding Amazing Fantasy which is iconic um, of the four Amazing Spider-Man covers this one is my least favorite so far. Yeah. Since this one is four panels of Spider-Man going up to the Sandman and trying to grab a hold of him before he kind of 
encases Spider-Man in his sandy body and mentions that he's a Sandman. We get, like, some really interesting layouts for the first three issue covers. Um, and especially in two and three, where Spidey's facing off against the bad guy. But this just feels like a different angle of what we're about to read, especially with it being four different panels. Instead of, like, one core image, it's like we're just reading the comic, but it's on the cover. Um, and Which is even funnier, because the first page... The splash page and title card is magnificent. Yeah. I mean, you've got... It's split in half of, like, two different backgrounds with Sandman against the police on the left side and Sandman being punched by Spider-Man in his sand form uh, in the high school on the right side. Like, it's it's a great image. It would have made a better cover, I mean, <laughs> if we're being honest. Oh, well, I guess. At least it's here. Yeah. And, you know, reading reading this now, like, seeing the first actual panel of Spidey looking at a billboard about the Spider-Man menace, a new series by J. Jonah Jameson, just reminds me of the old uh, Toy Biz Marvel Legends Spider-Man figure that came with, like, a, a stand that you could plug Spidey on, and it had, like, a J. Jonah Jameson calling Spider-Man a menace, or something like that. Um, it makes me think of that in my... Old, old age. Actually, because I know I got, like, this little, like, like, Lego kind of knockoff thing that had a, like, billboard for the whole news thing with J. Jonas Jameson with, a, like, a web on it. Yeah. And I think it might have came with Sandman as, like, the villain. Or, actually, no, I think it was Green Goblin, but still, it definitely was. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. I don't know, it was a while ago. (laughs) Yeah. But I love, we get, like, the first instance of, like, Parker Luck. (laughs) He sees a crime in progress, jumps on in to stop him. But it's right before they do the thing. So really, technically, a crime hasn't been committed, and the police can't arrest him. And not only can the police not arrest him because they haven't done anything, they start accusing Spider-Man and call the officer over. Um, and that, that to me, is like... That is like some quintessential, like, Parker luck. And, you know, before we recorded today, I, I was kind of... had Spider-Man 2 on in the background, and... It's just like the one scene where he's taking photos at um, John Jameson's, like, engage. It's not his engagement party to Mary Jane, but he's being honored and he proposes to her in the scene. And, like, in two minutes, he goes to reach, like, for a canopy and someone takes the last one in front of him. And he's trying to take a picture and, like, the lens cap is on. And then he's going to go grab a drink and then someone grabs the last one. And then he finally gets a drink and it's an empty glass. And it's like that kind of stuff just wears really thin for me. That's and makes him more sad sacky than like I feel he needs to be. Like Raimi really, you know, hits you on the head with Parker Luck in that. And it's not I don't know, it doesn't feel quite as human or relatable, like having that much focused in one thing. Compared to this where 
I mean, it's just bad timing. And if he would have thought about it for a little bit, it could have been completely avoided. But he just instinctually reacted. And at the end of the day, it's like, is it is it good or bad? Because he did stop them from what they were going to do, and that person doesn't have to worry about property damage or any of that other stuff. But now they're free to go about and try it somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but it, it very quickly leads to us seeing uh, the Sandman for the first time. Break break that down for me. How do you think this first fight goes? Um, it's definitely one that is not in Peter's favor. But I do kind of like how it starts out. Where Peter, like, recognizes him as the Sandman. Which... It's nice to know that, like, there's a bit of, like, war that we haven't been seeing around. Or, like, the Sandman is, like, big enough that Peter's already heard of him. Yeah. And that, like, and I like his attitude towards Peter where he's trying to just, like, walk him off, walk it off. That Peter, like, jumped on him, sort of. But then Peter goes to, like, grab him since he's walking away, and then we get a taste for his powers in a whole lot of ways where he dissipates into sand and then reappears, and then the Sandman asks him to punch him, to which the first time his hand, Peter's arm goes right through, and then the next time is he tries to punch him in the face, and then it's tough as iron. Which I think is a nice little immediate demonstration of what he can do. <laughs> and then we get a little scene where Peter's mask rips, of course. And then he goes on talking about, like, how if he goes up and tries to, like, catch Shanman now, he'll probably get thrown in jail since the Sandman will rat him out. And then... J. Jonah Jameson will ruin his life, and Ant-Man will be out there in the world selling shoelaces for ten cents. So, Peter has to run away, and Sandman gets to go and rob a bank. And, of course, demonstrate his powers a bit more by turning his key and... Er, <laughs> turning his finger into a key and then sliding through the gates and whatnot. Yeah, I, how do you think the fight would have gone if Spider-Man's mask didn't rip? Um, probably not well, so, since... I mean, he's pretty much as, like, I think the title kind of shows that nothing can stop the Sandman, or at least just, like, the basic, like, punches and kicks. And as we'll see later, the webs don't really work either. So, probably not too well. And it would probably just end up with the Sandman getting away again, as he does here. And then Peter just being all, like, bruised up and stuff. Well, there's a, a definite pattern emerging of Spider-Man meets villain, Spider-Man gets beaten by villain... Spider-Man feels bad about losing, 
Spider-Man comes back and beats Villain, and I would say all's well that ends well, but um, the end, basically. And, you know, he could have devised, like, a web mask. True. But, you know, he's still... I mean, this is issue four. He's still figuring it out. He's a kid. Um, I'm not going to carp on that. But, yeah, I mean, he, he panics and he runs away. And, yeah, like you pointed out, it's... Sandman's pretty awesome in that he just... He doesn't care. He's not rushing away. He's... Just like, yeah, he's he's showing off because this is probably his first real threat that might be able to stop him, and he proves that nothing can stop him, as you just said. So, I mean, he's the dude's got to feel pretty good about himself at, at this point. And you know, once again, we get an atomic device testing center that uh, caused an accident that caused the villain. Uh, yeah. It's very similar to the Incredible Hulk, which was also a bomb that went off in a remote area, and also like the Incredible. Well, I'm gonna say that I was gonna say he's also green like the Incredible Hulk, but that's <laughs> not how the Hulk started off. Uh, it started off gray. And I like I like Peter coming home and Aunt May interrupting him with cookies and milk, and he's got to throw on a robe really quick. I mean that's that's something we've seen before in in other media and I don't know it's just fun seeing like the the origin of it yeah and one continuity well I guess it wouldn't be like a continuity error but Peter is talking to, since his mask got ripped he's talking about how he needs to like sew it up and work around Aunt May kind of being. Aaron checking in on him. So he kind of stays up at night sewing. But he talks about how he's not really much of a seamstress and how he's bad with his thumbs. But if you go back a little to Amazing Amazing Fantasy 15, he creates the costume himself. Yeah. Like the whole entire outfit. So him saying that he's not like that good at this despite the fact that he made the whole thing by himself I don't know yeah and we get uh, the usual pranks Jameson gets webbed up to his chair when he sits on it because Spidey left a little webbing present which I don't think we've established the whole one hour dissolving thing yet have we mm. I don't think we've, we we've have. been recording these episodes a little spread out, so yeah. I don't remember of the prior three issues if we've established that it's only an hour time frame. So again, I'm not gonna deduct anything from that either, because I mean they're still just figuring it out. Yeah. But we get uh, our predecessor, Josh Bertoni, one of his favorite characters, Betty Brant. Shout out to Josh. Um, having a little bit of an interaction with Peter, but nothing too much. We get Peter back at school, and uh, Liz Allen, and the great expression, suffering cats. I forgot all about my date with Liz tonight. <laughs> like I think you should try using that at school. The next time you forget 
something or to do something. Sure. Yeah. Let me know how that works. <laughs> hmm. I should say G and galoshes? Yeah, galoshes. I don't even know what that is. Well, that's because you live in an area that well, you originally grew up in a desert, so galoshes are like rubber boots you wear when it's raining oh. so your feet don't get wet. That's something you have to worry about in your life, in the land of flip-flops and cargo shorts. I like like this getaway that Sandman has from the police where he kind of becomes like a human snake. Yeah. He has no arms, no legs, just a head and like a green striped body. Yeah. Which conveniently as he's trying to escape the place he winds up at Peter's school. Well, as he says, nobody would think to look for him in the high school. True. And um, I like how just how fate works in this story where in his inability to defeat the Sandman and staying up all night, all night, you know, working on his costume, how it causes him to be unfocused in school and, you know, worrying about if even the spider, his powers are affecting his brain because he can't do anything right. And so he's just full of worry. And because he's daydreaming in class, he gets punished by having to take old bottles from the lab down at the boiler room. And because of that, uh, Sandman spots him, and Peter goes down to the boiler room where he sees the uh, janitor adjusting the new king-size vacuum cleaner, which is setting up its appearance later in the issue. Um, so it's, it's nice how it all weaves together and, and plays into it. And I like how Sandman hears someone's coming, so he just randomly jumps into the first room. Instead of, like, turning into sand again or slipping on the door, he just bursts into the exact room where the principal's there. Um, so on page 11, the third panel, uh, there's a close-up of, of the Sandman, and there's something very modern-day Frank Miller about that face to me. It just, to me, captures Frank Miller's current style really well. It's Steve Ditko, but when I was rereading it for this podcast, I'm like, oh, wow, that, that looks like Frank Miller art. Now I need to go find some Frank Miller art to, like, prove my point. But I, I love how the, the principal stands up to the Sandman, who's like, hey, since I'm here, give me a diploma. And the principal's like, I can't do that. Um and how the kids are, like, impressed because he's standing up to them. Um, it's like, you go, Principal Davis. Yeah. And he's going to get pummeled, and, you know, it's probably not going to end well for him. No. I mean, Sandman connects. Like, he could very easily kill this dude. Um, but, you know, fortunately, he picked the school that Spider-Man attends, and, and Spidey jumps in. And there's the whole dichotomy of them cheering on Spider-Man, where earlier in the day, they, you know, I'm sure Flash was picking on him in the hallway. Yeah. And Peter even... I mean, he was. He made that's, that's the same day he made the galoshes dig and was teasing him for the umbrella. And now everyone's behind him cheering him on. Yeah, and then Peter points out himself where he wonders if they would cheer as loud as they do if they knew it was him, P. 
Peter Puny Parker. And we have Liz worried about him because she doesn't see Peter anywhere. And Flash is like, ah, he's a coward. He's probably hiding. So they go uh, fight through the school. And, you know, he's still kind of, he's trying to get some space to move. But he's just using his webs and nothing really seems to be working for him. And Spidey's starting to get worn out already. And I like how Sandman reads the situation and, and, you know, changes his body composition to, like, be soft so he doesn't get hurt, but then harden it around Spidey so then he's stuck and then gives him a headbutt. Um, It feels very similar to Spider-Man 3 in the back of the uh, security truck. Yeah. And I like his... As he's trying to, like, reach for Peter, he makes his hand, like, super giant. I don't know. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then, once Peter's hand gets stuck, he, like, lobs him into, um... The post. The post, and it just, like, absolutely destroys Sandman's head. Yeah. I mean, he's fine, of course, since he's made of sand, but, I don't know. I think that was just, like... A creative way of getting him off. It's just a cool panel. Like his his head exploding into sand against the post. And you'll see, uh, in the next page, you'll see Sandman do this again and again throughout his criminal career. Like just enveloping someone in himself. Uh, Which leads to Spidey rolling up in a ball and maneuvering Sandman basically into the basement. Okay, so now Peter's got a plan. And he's, like, trying to false bravado his way through it. Like, I've got a drill, so you better keep your distance. Like, really, what's what's that little drill bit's not going to do anything? But it works in his favor because Sandman's like, come on, dude. Which, which leads him to go into light, grainy sand form. And with his dazzling spider speed, Peter vacuums him up. Which, and we get the first historic. Here's the first part of your education, courtesy of your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. So, Amazing Spider-Man number four, mark that down. The first time we see friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. <laughs> and I always just thought it was kind of funny that you know he he vacuums the Sandman up. That's how he beats him. And as he's getting sucked into the vacuum, he's just Sandman's just like, oh, like I don't know what, I don't know what that means. And not only that, I mean, we turn the page and and Spidey's relieved. He's like, that heavy canvas bag will hold him for sure. I'm like, will it really? I mean, there, he could just easily like turn into sand and slip out. How I thought that this battle was going to play out, since Peter goes to school, like, after he gets dressed for the morning, Aunt May gives him an umbrella, since she thinks it's going to rain today. Uh-huh. So I thought, like, oh, maybe since Peter's trying to get, like, a big open area to fight Sandman, I thought he was going to take him outside, and then it would start to rain, and then, like, in... Something like Spider-Man 3, he would get all wet and soggy. But here, of course, he just finally gets vacuumed up. 
Yeah. Would have been interesting. What do you think of uh, Spidey reenacting the battle with uh, the bucket of sand that's for fire use only? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, it's a good idea. Like, what he's doing is smart, but A, I just, I don't, yeah. Sand against fire. I don't know how that works. Well, you you put the sand on the fire because it's so dense on the base of the fire that you're putting enough on it that it would smother it out. Because without oxygen, the fire dies. You take out one part of the fire triangle and it goes out. So it's like when you're... We haven't really done this a whole bunch. Like when you go camping, like you move dirt on top of where the embers are to kind of smother it and mm-hmm. so it doesn't reignite. And that's basically why they have this bucket of sand here. Um, I mean, it's not going to stop, you know, a big fire at the high school. You yeah. want some extinguishers, but I get why it's there. I just think it's funny that he's trying to rationalize that it's it's okay to restage this fight. Uh, that there's nothing wrong about it. Because it's just like, you know, doing a reshoot on a movie. And your favorite spider signal makes an appearance during the daytime. Um, That's a really strong light to shine during the middle of the school day on the sidewalk from a distance. And Jonah gets there, like, so fast because he's got to blame Spider-Man. Of course he does. And again, like, I think about it like as, you know, what a caricature Jonah is, um, just in general. But, I I don't know, the older I get, the more I could see him actually inflaming the crowd against Spider-Man, like if this was a real situation. So I get where Peter's worry comes from, that if he gets closer, like, Jonah's going to turn everyone against him, and the police are going to unmask him. Yeah. Um... (laughs) <laughs> and of course, you know, Spidey lowers the vacuum cleaner down, um, and then has to change back into Peter to make an appearance. And Jonah tracks him down in the high school, and and, Sp- and Peter hands over the film that he just took, and cheapskate Jonah is like, "Oh well, I'll take the cost of developing out of your pay." Yeah, it's like, oh man, yeah. Not a nice guy. Just cutting every corner that he can. I mean, no one else apparently has pictures of Sandman because Peter didn't even know what he looked like. He just heard stories. So this is pretty much a Bugle exclusive. And uh, then again, it's not the real Sandman anyways. But still, like he should have these exclusives. He should be paying Peter a bonus. But, you know, Spidey is just relieved that everything turned out okay. And then he sees Liz, and she's mad at him. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like... I don't know. It's because, like... Apparently Peter's been asking her for, like, so long now, and then she finally agrees to it. And then the moment, like, he, like, 
decides like, oh no, I can't do it this time. She gets like extremely upset about it. She just seems too mad than like what she should be. In my opinion. And and of course Flash taunts him about his umbrella. And Peter quickly angers to that and and you, you start to see his confidence build because, like, I don't think, you know, the Peter Parker of, like, pre-Amazing Fantasy 15 would have stood up to him like this where he grabs him by the shirt collar, balls up his fist, and, like, flashes ready. He's like, oh, we're really going to do this? He's excited. And then we get the great, um, iconic half-Spidey, half-Peter split where he realizes, like, okay, if I do this, like... I'm going to pulverize him. I mean, basically it's the equivalent of like Sandman beating up the principal. Um, so he calms himself down, which is the right thing to do, yeah. and and walks away. But that just riles up Flash even more, and, and he just continues his teasing. And I like how like, someone grabs one of his fellow classmates grabs his arm and it's like you gotta feel his arm under this jacket flash Parker's got muscles like a weightlifter but everybody's gone leaving Peter by himself as they all drive off and and like Liz goes along with it until like as they drive away and, and she's like that's enough you don't have to be that cruel to him and Flash doesn't understand but I like that you know, we do see a, a more forgiving side to Liz right now. Um, like, you can tell she cares, and she's only giving him the cold shoulder because she's hurt. And so she's trying to put on a brave face in front of, you know, the kids. Um, and that leads to Peter walking home, uh, overhearing everyone's thoughts about him as he makes his way. And there's something about like these scenes that Lee puts in about like, the man on the street segment that I felt um, Sam Raimi did a good job of capturing throughout his Spider-Man trilogy where you get like the common man's reaction to what's going on. The last panel, I just, I love it. You've got Peter mostly in costume. He doesn't have his gloves on or his mask. Um, just having his Peter moody thoughts with I just his mask is in the corner there's a spider hanging down from lord knows what in front of it it's just a great composition it's very moody it's just, it's a classic ending we'll see different variations later too where you get like the spider-man mask like in the background of the skies you know peter walks off that kind of thing uh, ditko could really end an issue with a with a final panel what do you think? Um, I think I, I think this is probably my favorite issue so far. I mean, besides like the little, I mean, there's like a little like critiques I have with it, like the little whole thing with him getting like angry. Well, not angry, just irritated with sewing up his mask. And... What was that other thing you mentioned? Or something. 
whatever you mentioned earlier, and just like the little like things that I don't like holding up lies, like it's like a little things that like I don't understand, but the Sandman is a really great villain in this, and I think his bouts with Peter or a Spider-Man rather is just it's really entertaining. And we get a and speaking of Peter, we get a whole lot of him in this. And as moody as he can kind of be in this, I like the whole thing with as we were just talking about him almost beating up Flash, but realizing that he would pretty much kill him and then him just saying he's not worth the trouble and then walks away while burying everyone's like taunts and whatnot. So we are we're at issue four. We've seen Chameleon, the Vulture, the Tinkerer, Doc Ock, and Sandman. Where would you rank those villains from best to worst? Okay, so Sandman, as I think I've talked about, is my favorite so far. Um, jeez. Trying to debate whether or not I like. Tinkerer is number two, isn't he? <laughs> no, <laughs> not Mr. Weird Alien Guy. I guess the Vulture and then Doc Ock. And then the Tinkerer, and then the Chameleon. So you put the Tinkerer over the Chameleon, huh? Yeah. Interesting. As weird as it is, I kind of like the weirdness of the Tinkerer in this. Yeah. So, that's why he beats out the Chameleon slightly. But. Yeah. Interesting. I I think... Like, up to this point, yeah, I'd probably have to agree with you. Sandman would be the top. Ock and Vulture are kind of neck and neck. Yeah. I mean, both of them, though, are like... Spidey gets in a good punch, and they're both out. Um, it's So it's more like, who's got the cooler gimmick? And I just feel like we get... Maybe just a titch more with Ock than we do Vulture. Although... Again, like I was reading, uh, the first time I would have read this would have been around the time that Spider-Man 2099 showed up, um, who also had his own vulture, so I may be a little more skewed because of that, just in my memory. And then Chameleon, because like, I like the Chameleon, but there's really a not, not a lot to him, it's just the Mission Impossible face-swapping thing. Mm-hmm. So... Like, he's not really a threat, other than it's like, who is he? Um, and then Tinkerer, I just put at the bottom, because <laughs> he's a Tinkerer. I, I appreciate, though, how you like the weirdness of it, and that's what makes it fun. Um, so, so far, Spidey has had all his own villains, but as we... Next time... We're going to get into uh, Amazing Spider-Man number five, and I've been looking forward to this 
for a long time. Because uh, Amazing Spider-Man number five is the first Spider-Man comic I ever remember reading as a kid. So once again, we get the Human Torch making an appearance. Um, and Spider-Man takes on Doctor Doom. And there is so much good stuff going on in this next issue. I can't wait for you to read it. Um, but yeah, so everything before now, I didn't read... Well, with the exception of Amazing Fantasy fifteen. Everything before now, I didn't read until I was in high school. So, maybe a year younger than you are now. But, like, this next issue, I probably read when I was, like, five. And, really, I didn't read it. Your grandfather would have read it to me, because I was five. And Stanley uses big words. So, I'm really excited for us to talk about that next time. Yeah, we just have to reserve our copy now. Exactly. I, I, I always read those and wonder, like, what what did people do back in the day? Like, reserve your copy now makes sense, because, you know, later today or tomorrow, I can go on to our comic book shop's website yeah. and literally reserve the issues we want, which variant covers if we want a variant cover. But, like, back in 1963, I doubt you went to the grocery store or the Circle K and, like talk to the clerk behind the counter and be like, when Amazing Spider-Man number five comes in, can you put aside a copy for Johnny, please? <laughs> and be like, yeah, sure, kid, whatever. You're going to buy something or not? You know, yeah. I can't imagine that that the 7-Eleven was putting comics aside for the neighborhood kids or the local bodega or whatever. But then again, what do I know? Yeah, uh, ASM number four, though, closing out today's episode. Um, well, Amazing Spidey three and four, just solid issues, I think. Um, do they hold up? I, I feel like they still do. Yeah. There's a couple of weird little quirks, but I feel like there's a lot of inspiration, obviously, that gets taken from them because these are the origins for these two particular villains. Um, and yeah, you can pick it apart and be like, well, they're both nuclear accidents that cause them, and really they would just die in real life, but that's like most of Spider-Man's rogue gallery, and Spider-Man himself. Yeah. They had this kind of accident, they would have died of cancer or something. So. No one really knew how atomic power or nuclear power really worked, so. It's fun, and we'll see Spidey fight villains in his high school again, be it in the Ultimate Universe when the Green Goblin comes looking for him in the first storyline, or even in Amazing Spider-Man 1 where he fights the vil- the lizard in his school. So, here's the first example of that happening, and now you've read it. It's good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, any any other final thoughts about these two amazing issues we just read, Jack? Um, not really. They were just solid introductions to two of Spider-Man's greatest villains. And I really enjoyed them. Right on. Well, folks, it looks like we are done today. Uh, we got a cat that probably is starving right now. Uh, so we are going to sign off. Uh, next time, though, 
we've got Amazing Spider-Man 5, and I don't know yet if we're going to do 5 and 6, or just me gushing about issue 5 and my childhood memories is going to be like an episode by itself. So we're going to play it by ear, see how it goes. Uh, we're still figuring out if we want to keep doing two episodes, I'm sorry, two issues an episode, or just do single issues uh, per episode and just have more episodes. So we'll see. But until we make that determination, this is Javi. And I'm Jack. Reminding you to keep your web cartridges full. And stay classy. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, part of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. You can follow the show on Twitter, at ASM underscore classics. Jack and I would like to thank Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Morgan Grant, and John Wilson for allowing us to continue their work on this podcast, which you can find on the Spidey Dude Network. We would also like to thank Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, John Romita, and all the amazing creators who have followed, making the Web Slinger one of the greatest heroes of all fiction. Thank you, and Excelsior.